Thank you for listening to this podcast. The Ville Church provides all its resources for free. If you have been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving financially. For more information on how to give and other resources, please visit www.theville.church. So this morning we're going to be in the book of Colossians. We've been going through this verse by verse, and we're in our series, Rooted. And we're actually at the verse that we have up there. We'll be going from uh, Colossians chapter 2, verses 6, all the way to 15 this morning. And so if you could turn there with me, and uh, I have most of these verses on slides, uh, but we've been moving through quite a bit this morning, so you're going to have to stay with me as closely as possible. But we're right here where Paul, again, we're going to talk about him addressing false teachings that are wanting to come into the church, and that'll be definitely the number one enemy that will be at odds with us from the time of our conversion, the time of our salvation, until we get to be with Jesus, will be something that is false. Satan has no other power than a lie. And so these false teachings are coming, and Paul is now addressing them through what he's about to teach from 6 all the way to 15. He is also talking about discipleship. He's talking about what it looks like to walk, to live this faith out. And he starts off in verse 6 of Colossians 2. He says, therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. In this verse, Paul is going to give us the what. Not only that, but he's going to give us the how and the who. As a matter of fact, the how and the who, if they are, uh, if, I'm sorry, if the what is divorced from the who and the how, then that would cause us to make it a law. We should never divorce them. We should never divorce what we're going to do, what are we to do, from how and who. So what does this verse tell us? Or what is, what is the action? What does the verse tell us? Walk. You can say that. Say walk. Right? He says, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, that's nothing to do. It says walk in him. So the action is the walk. This is the doing. If we take that action, divorce it from the how and the who, it turns into a law, and it's deadly to our spiritual life, and it becomes a curse. This is a problem that is in all of us naturally as humans. We are born with the law in our heart because God spoke the law. He even created us out of the law. The law is the word of God. God said, let us make man. He made them, and then he tells them who they are, the law, the truth, the word, and he tells them what to do before the fall. So it's in us to want to do. It's in us to have this law. So that divorce from who and how becomes a curse. Galatians 3 verse 10 says this. For all who rely on works of the law under, are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. If we land when it comes to our walk and our faith with Christ, all about what I'm supposed to do. How am I doing? What didn't I do? 
If that's where we land, it becomes this curse because guess what? The curse is that you need to do every single thing that God asks you to do 100%, never failing in word, in deed, and in intention. But that even goes with wrongdoing. Many times um, when we're born with this law in our hearts, even if we don't believe in God, even people that don't believe in God, that's why people do good things. People that are unbelievers sometimes are nicer, better. They're, they're more of a good person than even some of us as believers. Good will be done even without someone being a believer. It happens all the time. There's nonprofits and organizations that are around that are helping and doing good in this earth because there's a law written in their art because they're made in the image of God. The problem is, though, is that when we're trying to do things so we will have value, we, so we will measure ourselves by our doing, and we will do for approval. Even wrongdoing. Here's an example of wrongdoing. When I was growing up and someone wanted to, you know, have a reputation of being a tough guy, a bad dude, when I grew up, and we called it a vato loco. Everybody say vato loco. <laughs> V-A-T-O-L-O-C-O. Vato loco. I thought that would make you laugh. He had to be a mean fighter and beat people up. Even if this person is doing wrong, they've got to keep this up. And you can just think about a million things that people do wrong and they've got to keep it up because for some reason it gives them, even at what's, out of what's wrong, some type of value, some type of worth. It's right to them. Number two, Paul does not give us the what without the how and the who. So what is the how and the who? He says here, just as you received Jesus Christ the Lord. There's the how. Just as you received Jesus Christ the Lord. How are we to walk? How are we to do? As you receive Jesus Christ. And, who, and what's the who? Jesus Christ the Lord. So how did you receive Jesus Christ the Lord? How, I mean, what's this just as you received him? What is that? What is that just as you received him? It's the gospel. And the gospel is that God is holy. The gospel is that God is holy. And if you want to know a little bit more about holiness, go back to the teaching in this series, Jesus is God, and I go a little bit more into it in depth. I'm not going to go in depth here because there's a lot to get through. But here's the gospel, that God is holy. And that man was made in his image to be holy. But he betrayed God, he disobeyed God, he rebelled against the king, and his sin is against God. The penalty of that sin was death. That means that death comes through sin, and this brought spiritual and physical death to every human being and affected all of creation. That means you, me, and everyone else are born sinners and have done things, done the same things. We've done wrong. Jesus Christ, God the Son, was born of a virgin by the Holy Spirit, obeyed and honored the Father with his whole life. That's the good news. God being holy requires perfect, holy, sinless life. That's what God requires. If you want to know the standard of God, if anyone ever says like, hey, I want to do this to be good in life, this is what good is, God is perfect, he requires perfect, sinless, and holy. That's what he requires. 
for our sins. An exchange is made. Jesus got our sins and we got his sinless life credited to us as if we lived perfect. Jesus resurrects as proof that the death has been defeated and ascends to the Father as proof that his payment of death was accepted. So this death that was against us, our foe, our enemy, death, that was passed through sin, resurrection says it's defeated. Ascension, where Jesus is ascended, he seats at the right of the Father, saying that the Father accepts that. He accepts the Son's, accepts the son's death. Now this is good news, and it's the gospel. But I want you to hear me really, pay attention real closely here. How, just stay, stay paying attention real closely. That's a whole lot of God that God had to do. But it does not stop there. Before you and I are able to receive it, God has to do a transplant. It's a spiritual heart transplant. He removes a stony heart that is not alive spiritually and gives us a heart that is spiritually alive. He does a transplant in us. Ezekiel eleven nineteen says it like this, 19 and 20. It says, and I will give, you, give them one heart and a new spirit, and I will put within them. I will remove the heart, here's the transplant of stone, from their flesh and give them the heart of flesh that they may walk in my statues and keep my rules and obey them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. He has to do that. That has to take place. So when this new heart comes into us, it brings gifts. The gifts that it brings, one of them is repentance. Repentance, and the other one is faith. Repentance is this ability to see our sins against God and against others. See, without being able to realize that God is holy and that each and every one of our sins must be held accountable, must be paid for, our sins, past, present, and future, without being able to see that, it does no good, the gospel. Right? But we have this gift that opens our eyes and allows to hate our sin, declare war against our sin, and then gives us faith to believe and receive the message of the gospel. Again, this is God's doing. So how did we receive Jesus? It was all God's doing. So in the same way we are to walk in him, by placing our faith in the gospel, this is all God's doing through Christ. That's how we receive Christ. That's how we walk, or that's how we do, by receiving the message of him doing a transplant, giving us this heart that says, I will turn and act, be in war against my sin, and I know that I've sinned against God and against others, and through faith, I believe and I receive this. Ephesians 2.8 says it's a, great, it's a gift again. It summarizes it. I know you've heard this uh, scripture many times, but again, this news is something that we forget all the time. By tomorrow morning when I wake up and I go to my work, and I face tomorrow's challenges. I'll have probably already forgotten this message. Message is Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace you've been saved through faith. See, it's faith that you've been saved through. And then it tells you where does it come from? And this is not your own doing. So it has nothing to do with what you did. It's the gift of God. 
We have a God that is a gift giver. We have a God that is generous. We have a God that shares. Not a result of works, so that anyone may boast. For by grace, through faith, how does this happen? It's a gift. See, walk in this gift, this gift of protection from the judgment of God. This walk in this gift for, for a freedom of shame and condemnations. That we rest in his doing, not our doing. Now let's go on to the rest of our verses. And it's interesting how Paul is going to actually point us back to this, but he's going to bring up these other topics that maybe you and I have never really looked at. Verse 7 says, rooted and built up in him, there you go, it's back to in him, and established in the faith just as you were taught according in thanksgiving, abounding in thanksgiving. So rooted and built up points us to him, again to Christ, then in faith. This faith that God gives, when we see this clearly, all we do is give thanks, and that's what happens is we end up in this place of thankfulness. We see how big our sin is, and we see how great God's love is, and it gives us thankfulness. In verse 8, it says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So right here, Paul is is now addressing, here's these deceptions that are going to go on. They're going to come in, and philosophy in 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 the... definition of this specific word is certain Jewish Christian aesthetics, which busied itself with refined and speculative inquiries into the nature and classes of angels, into rituals of the Mosaic law and the regulation of Jewish tradition respecting practical life. This is pointing you to start looking to angels. This is pointing to look to some other spiritual being other than Christ, other than God. Paul says, don't let that get you, right? He says, let no one take you captive. There is a captivity that God wants you to have. The captivity is what Christ has done for you. He says, don't let this captivity take you. Also, he says, empty deceit, lies. How many lies do we believe in a day? How many lies are speaking to us by the world, by culture, by our feelings, Right? Our sinful nature. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ, there is always this power associated with angels and spirits and traditions and philosophies. If someone has this great philosophy, there's this power, there's this authority, there's this I know and you don't. And what I know makes me better than you. Right? Oh, I have this special in with this special angel makes me closer to God. I'm this spiritual type of experience makes me better, makes you less, makes me more power. There's always power associated with it. And I think verse 9 starts to knock it out of the park where Paul starts to say, well, wait a minute, for in him the fullness of the deity dwells bodily. You want power? You want authority? Paul says, it's in Jesus fully because Jesus is fully God. Verse 10 says, you have been filled in him. So now we have all God's power, and now we're filled with all of God's power, who is the head, and talk about authority, and rule and authority of all, I mean all, I'm sorry, head of all rule and authority. Every power and authority, God is above that. Verse 9 points to the one with all authority, 
But now verse 10 says, yeah, and you've been filled in him. You are in Christ and Christ is in you. In other words, skip the angel worship garbage. Christ is in you, head of all angels and all other authority. Now here's where Paul starts to point to a couple of topics I don't think we speak too much in church about, Colossians 2, 11 through 15. It's a long set of verses. So we see that Paul points now to the gospel message which comes by faith and faith comes by hearing. We've seen that already. And then now hearing of the word of God. Then he points to baptism, the cross, and also to circumcision. These are two of the sacraments and ordinances of the church. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, the cross, right? And now with this baptism, he also brings up circumcision. What is this? Well, if we go back, what I first stated about the disciples is the same thing in the great commission of Jesus, uh, Jesus gives us. So when I first stated that Paul is addressing discipleship, Jesus also gives us in the great commission the formula or the way to make disciples. Matthew 18, I mean Matthew 28, 18 through 20 says, and Jesus came and said to them, here's the one thing that Jesus says for all of us. He says, all authority, very important to remember that, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So here's the full, he has all authority. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Everybody say all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The phrase all nations, Jesus is talking about the Abrahamic covenant. It comes from Genesis chapter 22, verse 18. 22 verse 18, uh, 22 verse 18 says, And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Going back to Matthew 28, 18 to 20, Jesus is saying, what? Make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them, there's the one sacrament, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey, there's the word of God being preached, there's the gospel being preached. And to observe all that I've commanded you. What do you command them? To remember him in the Lord's Supper, right? Reminding them about the cross. That's the way to make disciples. It's going to tie together a little bit as we keep going forward. So we find this Abrahamic covenant that he makes. Now, what is the Abrahamic covenant? We have to look at Genesis chapter 17, 1 through 11. Everybody say Abrahamic covenant. When Abraham was 99 years old, that's pretty old. Anybody 99 years old here? If you were, and I said, hey, it's about time you're going to have a child, what would you think? You think I'm crazy. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make a covenant between you and me and may multiply you greatly. Then Abraham fell on his face and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you. And you shall be a father of multiple nations. No longer shall your name be called Abraham, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you father of multitude of nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant. Whose covenant? My covenant. His covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for the everlasting covenant. What kind of covenant? Everlasting to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourning. 
all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. This is a covenant that God says is forever and that he will be our God. He gives this promise in Genesis 12, 3, 18, 11, 18, 18, and all throughout redemptive history. Matthew begins the gospel in chapter 1, verse 1, with this verse. Matthew begins with the Abrahamic covenant, and he ends it with the Abrahamic covenant. Abrahamic covenant starts with 1, verse 1. How many hate reading genealogies? Right? Son of this person, son of that person, son of this person. There's a reason why it's there. I just found that out. Here it is. Matthew 1.1, the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. How does Jesus end, the, uh, Matthew end the gospel? In 28, 18 to 20, he says, baptize all nations. This word all nations is pointing to the all nations of the Abrahamic covenant that God made a promise and God does not break his promises. Matthew is teaching us where God instituted circumcision as a covenant sign of inclusion. All nations meant all peoples is a a covenant of inclusion. Now the resurrected Jesus declares that he has full authority and is changing the sign in the new covenant. So now the completed work of Christ, the circumcision is no longer the sign of God's covenant of grace. Baptism is. Baptism is now the sign of this new covenant. Isaiah 53, 8 says, by oppression and judgment, he, has, he was taken away. He's talking about Jesus here. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, he was cut off. Now, cut off in the Hebrew means a cutting, a covenant. There was a cutting of a covenant because Jesus was our bloody circumcision on the cross. The covenant sign of inclusion has changed from circumcision to baptism. Baptism now becomes a visible symbol of the gospel. Baptism is a sign and a seal. A sign meaning we can look at it and see visibly. A seal is the seal that the king puts on on whatever he declares is gonna be and never has changed. It's a sign and it's a seal and this seal is put on by our God. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. Isn't that amazing? Baptism is God saying, I'm your God and you are my people, beloved Father forevermore. It's good news. Baptism is our confession before men. It's public, but it's not a pledge of our action or our commitment. I don't know about you, but when I was taught about baptism and when I got baptized, it was like, hey, you're gonna make this commitment, you better get baptized. Here's like the super Christian, this is like, you know, you're going all the way, you know, like you you can never turn back on God, you can never give up on God, you know, you better stop doing this. Like, there was a lot going on there. And I don't know where your background comes from, but I would say, and I would say maybe that possibly that was the same with you. And then you you look at this, baptism is like this commitment that you made, but baptism is not a pledge or an action of our commitment. It is a sign and a seal of God moving toward us, not us moving towards God. This This is what 
not about what we're going to do to come to God. It's about what God did to come to us. That's very important because we live under this heaviness of us trying to do things to get to God. Because we know when we get to God, there's blessing, right? There's peace and there's joy. But the end of the day is that we are in God and he's come to us and he gives us his blessings. Baptism is about God's faithfulness to us, not our faithfulness to God. Baptism is about God's faithfulness to us, not our faithfulness to God. Baptism is not the one thing we do back to God and then now it's held over our head where we make promises to follow Christ and raise our children to follow Christ and then we blow it and then feel miserable. That's not what it is. Just like Peter told Jesus, I will follow you and I will do, go wherever you go and I will die for you. And then what did he do? What did, what did Peter do? He blew it, right? But again, this is about our, not about our commitment and promise. It's about Jesus' commitment and promise saying, I am committed to my promise and I will not mess this up. That's why Jesus says, go to all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all my commandments. It is to declare this wonderful news of an everlasting covenant. And that's why Paul brings this up. So church at Colossae will become rooted and established in the word and in baptism and in the Lord's Supper. He says, just as you receive the Lord Jesus Christ now, walk in him. Then he points to baptism in the cross, the Lord's Supper, remembering that Jesus said to do this in remembrance of me. Here's Paul. Paul says, for I, for I received, for what I received from the Lord. There's that, as you receive Christ. This is uh, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three to 26 says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. What does he say now? What's he about to do? What is Paul about to do that he received from the Lord? That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and we had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. You would think right here is where Paul's going to lay down the law. He's going to say, okay, here's what you got to do. You got to get your act together. You got to start being nice. You gotta do this, and you gotta do that, and you gotta do this, and you gotta do that. But Paul breaks it down and says, what I receive from the Lord, I now deliver to you. And this same delivering is the same message and the same gospel that has been preached from Genesis chapter three, when, when Adam falls and he says, he, the serpent shall bruise you, and you will crush his head. It's the same gospel message that all the prophets and all the law is pointing to is this Jesus, this gospel. And they're pointing so that way we can see that God is faithful from beginning to eternity. And when he had give thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup and after supper saying, this is the cup of the new covenant. Is it starting to ring a bell? The new covenant. In my blood, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim it. So let's read one more time Colossians 2, 11 through 15. Oh, I have it right here. In him also you were circumcised with circumcision made without hands. That's the new heart. That's the new spirit. Right? He gave you a new heart. By putting off the body of flesh, that's the stony heart, and by the circumcision of Christ, because Christ paid the penalty. Christ paid for the stony heart. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the power and working of God who raised him from the dead. Now you are united in God in baptism. Now you have this covenant over your life forever. God's promise to you. God's faithfulness to you. God's acceptance of you. God's saying that you are forgiven and not condemned forever and ever. No matter what you did yesterday, no matter what you do today, no matter what you do tomorrow, you are accepted before God. No one can ever take that away. No one can ever change that because this is not based on you and what you do and you moving towards God and trying to earn God's grace and earn God's love, but on him and what he's done for you. And you who were dead in your trespasses, there's that deadness, there's that stony heart, and the uncircumcision of your flesh. In other words, you had this hard heart that did not care. God made a life together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, every single trespass that we have ever had. By canceling the record of debt, there's that debt that stood against us with its legal demand saying that it deserves death. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, and that's the Lord's Supper. The body and the blood poured out for us. He disarms the rulers and the authorities that put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In other words, the only thing that the enemy has ever had against you, whether it is sin or Satan, was your guilt. And now he nailed that guilt to the cross, and that guilt became Jesus. Now how can we talk about this in a practical way. How does this become practical? How does the gospel become practical? How does it become this great, beautiful news, these words of Christ, this word of God, this word I'm preaching this morning, this Bible that I'm talking about that most of the time just puts us to sleep? Seriously, we can read it and hear it and learn it and it can just, I'm sorry, it happens to me. Like, this is a fairy tale. God has not meant for this to be something for us to use for us to escape from reality. Here's where it's going to get really practical. I hope this is helpful. See, let's say you have a challenge at work. I'll start lightly. Let's say you have a challenge at work. Something you have to get done. Right? It's It's a project. It's more demand. Whatever it is, a new position. And you know it's coming your way, but maybe you'll use some scriptures like, you know, I can do all things through Christ, you know, which is not untrue, it's true. Just so you won't feel the pain of the challenge. So you won't feel the, the, the fear of failure. So you won't feel uh, the possibility that it may get worse rather than better. Or the opposite, it might go really well, and you get the promotion, you don't even know what to do with the, pro, the promotion. 
but because God has already done all the work for us in our life to be accepted, to be loved, to be cared for, to be right, I'm able to walk in him and what his work that he's done in my work situation and say I am free to face the fact that this is challenging. I'm, I'm free to face the fact that this is hard, this job that I gotta do, whatever they asked of me. That's lightly. How about when you've hurt someone, right? You hurt somebody, some relationship you've had, friend, family, coworker, whatever it is, you hurt somebody. You did something hurtful to them. Here's how the gospel applies. So you hurt them and you realize God does not want you not to live in reality. That's why he spoke about that God is holy and that we are not. And that he deals with every sin and every sin is dealt with. So he wants you to look at the reality that you hurt somebody. And what did that hurt cause? Look at the reality that you are someone that hurt someone and feel the pain of that. Not the shame and not condemnation, because there's no condemnation for those in Christ. Why? Because he's already paid for the pain. He's already felt the pain. He's already paid for the sin that you did in that hurt that you caused. And he allows you to look at that reality and go through that and then talk to that person and say, I have hurt you. And there's no excuse. There's no reason for me hurting you. And he allows you to say, will you forgive me? I need to make that right, or I need to get help for that, or I need to deal with that. Nothing that you need to do, it's me. Why? Because we're free that he already paid the ultimate sacrifice for our hurt. How about someone hurts you? How about someone really hurts you? Like maybe abuse, maybe something tragic a really painful hurt. God does not want us to run away from the fact that you have been hurt and that what they did was wrong. That's why he doesn't cover our sins. What we did, he says it's wrong. And it matters. And he does not leave one sin unpunished and undealt with. The thing is that he punished his son instead of you, instead of me. So we must not let one hurt go undealt with. The Christian thing is to say, oh, well, we're all sinners. We're all broken. Oh, I've done bad things too. Oh, we got to forgive them. We need to forgive them. Understood. But it must be dealt with. Not just that, but what that hurt has caused you. Has it caused you pain? Allowing yourself to feel that pain, allowing yourself to process that pain, allow yourself to talk about that pain. Has it caused you anger? Allowing yourself to be angry. What does that look like? I'm angry. I'm mad right now. As a matter of fact, sometimes we need to stay long enough in that anger to actually deal with it. See, God's anger is against sin and sinners, and until it's dealt with, which was dealt on the cross, and until we come to a head on that, it's still anger of God against sin and sinners until that sinner 
comes to the fact that they sinned. At that point, if Christ gives them a new heart, they can have repentance and see that they've done wrong. We must do that for others. Now, they may never admit they've done wrong to you, and you'll have to deal with that in the reality of the gospel as well. But by God's grace, if they do, maybe now they can come to terms and repent and say, it's wrong and I need to change. It had nothing to do with you. But if they don't, guess what? You pray that they do, and you don't have relationship with them until. That relationship does not go forward until they deal with it. Just like our relationship with God does not go forward until we realize we have sinned against God. If they do, you forgive them. If not, you call them back to the truth, which is back to the gospel, and tell them, you did this, you did this, this is not okay, you need to see it, you need to see it. No matter how much pain it causes by us not being able to move forward, you need to deal with it, we need to deal with it. Because it's not just your soul, it's also their soul that's on the line as well. And that God loves them just as much as he loves you. And he wants to bring reconciliation if possible. Some relationships can never be reconciled. For example, a pedophile, right, cannot have relationship with a child. No. Could there be a forgiveness, an exchange of I was sorry and this is wrong? Yes, but that would be dealt with very delicately and that's to the extreme. And the gospel says, since he has paid for our sins, we can deal with this. And since he's forgiven us, we too can forgive that person even if they don't acknowledge it because it brings healing. But we must not deny the inner part. See, God just doesn't deal with the outer, this is what I'm gonna do, this is what I'm gonna say, this is how I'm gonna make it happen, we're gonna go through this, this is the gist of it, this is the action of it. No, he deals with the inner part as well because we don't wanna become like whitewashed tombs on the outside, he called the Pharisees, and dead man's bones on the inside. And I'm sorry to say that I myself have a temptation of doing that. Everything's fine, everything's good, I'll be just fine, everything's fine. It's not, sometimes it's not. We need to be able to deal with what we feel. Feelings are meant to be foul. I just got that just the other day, like two days ago. I was bottling up so much feelings of anger, fear, worry, they're meant to be foul, and they're meant to be talked about. Talk to God and talk to someone that you trust. Because guess what? If you don't, they, get, they start coming out. They come out in anxiousness. They come out in depression. They come out in addictions. They come out in verbal abuse. They come out in rage. They come out in uh, revenge. They come out in isolation. They that's all that is. It's just coming out of you. That's why you're isolating. That's why you're hardening your heart. That's why I harden my heart. They come out and they leak out. Because we are made in the image of God. If you look at how many scriptures that talk about how God feels whether he feels regret or he feels anger or he feels jealous or he feels sad. If you look at how many scriptures, you're made in his image and if you cut off your feelings, you're cutting off the image of God, part of the image of God. And that's why you feel unhuman and that's why you feel and I feel so lost so many times because we suppress these things for so long that we don't even know where we're coming or we're going and it just comes out. I know that I'm not supposed to do this, but I'm doing this 
And the real reason is we haven't dealt with whatever it is that's happened on the inside or what's happening right now. If we deal with, if we allow ourselves to feel, because the gospel says that we have been accepted, anytime, every single one of our sins, God felt. He just didn't feel, but he became that sin. The Bible says he that knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. So he just didn't feel it, he became it. What is that like? We'll never know. Every hurt that we has happened to us and every hurt we've done to someone else, Jesus has become. He felt it. He just didn't feel that, but he felt what you and I never want to feel. And that's his separation from God. God the Father turned from the Son while he was on the cross and all of our sin and all of his wrath was poured on him. That momentary time of that separation. And he felt that also. So I want you to know that you're not alone in what you feel. It's not just bad feelings either. It's in good feelings. When you're happy and you're excited and something good happened to you, man, this is awesome. How many ever sin when something awesome has happened to you? Like I go celebrate and I drink too much, right? Or I go celebrate and I pass the speed limit, cut someone off. I'm so pumped about what just happened. I'm cranking the radio, right? Or I'm so excited that, you know, I go spend this money, you know, because I just want to celebrate and I spent money I shouldn't have. Or maybe I celebrate and, and I want to keep the celebration going so I do all these things that are not right to keep this euphoria, and this great thing that God wanted to, to give me and, and for me to experience that was a good thing turns now into a sinful thing. See, what the gospel says is that it's okay to be happy. It's okay to feel happy about things in life. Something nice, something you recognize, something you smell, something you taste, something you saw, something that happened to you, so a good word, whatever, you're just feeling happy. It's okay. And let yourself feel happy. Why? Because your happiness does not determine that you're a good person. Your happiness and good things happen to you does not determine or say that God, that you're doing good, so therefore that's why those good things are happening to you. Because all of the blessings and all the promises that God has for you that are all good are his promise to you, not your promise to him. His performance for you, not your performance for him. And it's all paid for by his son on the cross. So we're allowed to enjoy and have good things happen and not have to sin and not feel bad about feeling good, and not think, oh, it's because I'm doing so good, or, oh my God, something bad's gonna happen because I'm feeling good now, because I'm probably gonna do something to take away this good thing that I feel. Does that make sense? I hope that's helpful, I hope that's practical. See, the Bible is the only, say, uh, teaching or understanding that deals with the whole person. The gospel deals with reality. And I feel what's most practical about the gospel is that it is real and it is true. It's the only real truth 
that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and he was buried and he rose on the third day and he ascended to heaven and that is a promise and a covenant that he makes that he's going to continue to keep until the day that you see him face to face and no man has seen him face to face ever but you're going to see him and I'm going to see him if you believe in Christ. That's the truth. That's what gives us the the power to walk in that. Walk in him. Walk in this news. They asked Jesus, what must we do to do the works of God? This was his moment in his time to say, here it is. Here's the list. Are you ready? He says, believe. That's the work. Believe in Christ. Point your hearts to Christ so you can have freedom to have fun. You can have freedom to deal with hard issues. You can have freedom to uh, uh, go through those challenges in life. Freedom to love your wife the way Christ loves the church. Freedom to talk to your child for the struggle and the situation they're in. Freedom to feel sad. Freedom to grieve. Freedom to feel scared. Freedom to feel angry. Freedom to walk this walk in him because you're in him and he is in you. You're united in Christ. The gospel has been spoken for us to be free because it gives God glory. It gives, God's, gives God glory to see that the very thing that kept us from him has been dealt with. That's reality. We're about to take of the Lord's Supper and if we could have the worship team come up the gospel demands a response. If you've never responded to what Jesus has done for you, you can respond. And if you can respond, that means that he belong, you belong to him. You're able to deal with the reality that you sin. And our sin is horrific before God. And he died a horrific death. But he is gracious and mercy. His kindness is forever and ever. So as we take of the Lord's Supper, we see a visible gospel being performed right before us as we take of the juice and take of the, of the bread. And we see it, the juice being his blood poured out for us, the bread being his body broken up for us. And Jesus said, do this. Paul said, this is what I received. So as we receive what? This visible gospel. As we receive, right, and, and walk in our baptism, knowing that our baptism is God's covenant to us. Every day we need to tell ourselves, I'm accepted. I'm loved. I'm forgiven. I'm not condemned. Christ died for me on the cross. The baptism, right? He was circumcised for me. I do not stand condemned, but I stand accepted. If you believe in this, we invite you to come be part of taking of the Lord's Supper. If you have not believed this, then we ask you to refrain from it. But we invite you to believe this. Your soul is on the line. And God is not worried about what you can do for him or what you need to stop doing for him. He'll give you repentance, which is a hate and a war that we declare against sin. He'll tell you and he'll help you to feel that, no, this is wrong. And then he'll give you the power to turn from your sins. It's not going to happen. Some things overnight, some things with time, some things little by little. Sometimes we even get worse before we get better when it comes to our walk with God. 
Because why? It's a walking in, believing in him. And we steer away from that. We run away from that time and time again. I don't know about you, but this has been a little bit of a hard week. And, and uh, I want to just play. I know the Bible. I know the gospel. So I don't have to deal with reality. I want to take it in my hands. And I want to say, Rodney, it's because you did this. Or because you didn't do this. And Jesus says, I did it all for you. Would you come to him today and celebrate the Lord's Supper with us? God bless you, church.